The Bible records just a few of the details of the rebellion. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to Revelation, the 12th chapter. Beginning in verse 3 and 4, the Bible says this. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. Verses 7 to 9 give us further insight. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, And his angels were cast out with him. No place in heaven found for him. He was cast to the earth. The earth was God's newest creation at that time. And he was cast to this place. Perfect harmony. Humanity created in God's image, a special creation. But that serpent just asked one question. Did God really say? And with it, the woman, deceived by the devil, and then her husband, deceived by his own desires, joined the rebellion against the Almighty Creator. Was he caught off guard by this rebellion? The book of Revelation tells us he was most certainly not caught off guard because it describes Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God's plan was in order from the beginning of time. John 3.16 articulates that plan in absolute detail. For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? He gave his only begotten son. Let me pause there for just a moment. While it is not the intention of this sermon to talk about the divinity of Christ, I do want to spend just a moment This is one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible because there are some that say that Jesus was literally born of God. The word only begotten is a very poorly translated word. It is in the original language, the Greek word monogenes. Mono meaning one and only. Genes meaning unique one. Jesus was the one and only unique one. There are many in our church today that are striving to return to the religion of some of the pioneers by saying that Jesus was a created being. My dear friends, I want to warn you, the creation cannot save the creation. It is only God that can save the creation. 
Jesus was not a created being. Jesus was the only, one and only unique one. Why was he one and only and unique? Because he was fully God and fully man at the same time. And people will then say to me, how is that possible? And my answer to you is, I have absolutely no idea. But the Bible says it, and because the Bible says it, I believe it. I'm not an electrician. Here's what I do know. I flip the switch and the light comes on. If I followed the same principle that some follow, and that is I don't understand it, and because I don't understand it, it must not be, then there will be many people sitting in the dark. I'm not a mechanic. In fact, for many years, whenever I worked on my car, before I worked on it, it was running. It may not have been running well, but I would work on it, and then afterwards it wouldn't run at all. I don't understand how an internal combustion engine works. I understand even less about the computers that now run these engines, and I understand even less about the mechanics behind electronic vehicles. But I can tell you this. I didn't walk here this morning. Even though I do not understand it, I trust that it works. And even though I don't understand the full divinity and full humanity of Christ, the Bible is clear that he is one with the Father and he has existed from eternity's past. And while I may not understand it, I believe it because the Bible says so. But God's plan was that he sent his only son that whoever, that includes me and I'm thankful for that, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Surely they would see in his son the personification of love. See, God had a choice in dealing with the rebellion of Satan. And that choice was he could have instantly extinguished the rebellion, which would have raised questions in the creation, including the angelic host, so they would no longer serve out of love, but they would serve out of fear, or he could do something drastically different. And that was to demonstrate what true love looked like. We know the many stories of the birth of Christ as we have just come out of this season celebrating the birth of Christ. The devil did all he could do to try to prevent it. But he failed. He failed miserably. And after he could not kill the Christ child at the birth, he continued to pursue Jesus throughout his life. And in a multitude of moments, trying to extinguish and eliminate him. And then it happened. Jesus was taken captive, illegally tried, and he was put to death. I'm sure for a moment, Satan celebrated believing he had conquered. His disciples wondering what was going on. One day, This was the Messiah whom we had pinned our hopes and now he's in the grave. 
two days. We thought this was the one. Three days. And an empty tomb. And in it, Jesus Christ, in the great controversy episode, celebrated his greatest victory, and as verse 5 says, and her child, speaking of Jesus, was caught up to God and his throne. Jesus was victorious, and in this back and forth of the great controversy between good and evil, Satan was not satisfied, and so verse 6 says that he then counterattacked once again. He couldn't take out the Christ, so now let's take out the people. The Bible says in verse 6 of Revelation 12, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days, a time period often referred to as the Dark Ages, from approximately 538 A.D. to 1798 A.D. in biblical prophecy. Satan was not able to take out the Christ, so he attempted to take out the Christ's people. This past fall, I had the opportunity to travel into the Piedmont Valleys of the Italian Alps, home to the Waldenses. The Waldenses were a simple people, a simple people who simply wanted to follow the Bible's teachings. This did not sit well with Rome, and they pursued these people. In fact, in September, I had the opportunity to go into a cave, in that very cave, in that very cave, Hundreds of people gathered. Hundreds of people gathered to worship God in that cave. And the Romans pursued them. Men, women, and children. And what did the Romans do when they found these people in the caves? They built a fire outside the mouth of the cave. And the smoke from that fire funneled into the cave where hundreds died for their faith. From the earliest of centuries through those dark ages, Satan unleashed his attack by persecuting the church. The ancient writer Tertullian in 197 AD wrote these words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of Christians. The pagan Diagneto wrote of that early time, Do you not see that the Christians are thrown to the wild beasts, that they may recant the Lord? Do not allow themselves to be beaten. 
Do you not see that the more they are punished, the more the others increase in numbers? And the historian Ippolito Romano, during the persecution organized by Septimus Severus, wrote that large numbers of men have been attracted by the faith of the martyrs and became God's martyrs themselves. You see, in this back and forth of the battle of the great controversy, Satan continues to fail and fail and fail. I don't know why it took him so long to figure it out, but once he figured out that the front-out assault against God's people no longer was working, he changed his tactic. Revelation chapter 13 describes the changing of the tactic. In the verse previous to Revelation 13, Revelation 12, 17, the Bible says, and the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. If you're reading from the King James Version, it says, the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. What's interesting about that verse is the word that says he went to make war, in the original language, actually should be translated, he went away. But when the translators were translating, they wanted to smooth out the language because when you're going to make war with someone, it doesn't make sense that you go away. (laughs) You attack, right? But where did he go away to? Why would he go away as he launches attack against God's people? My dear friends, we need to remember that when the Bible was written, it was not written with chapter and verse division. In fact, scholars make a joke that in the, 15, in the 13th, uh, 12, excuse me, the 13th, 14th, and 15th century, when they were dividing the Bible into chapters and verses, that the uh, individual that was doing it was riding in a, court, uh, in, a, uh, in a cart on a very bumpy road because of the randomness in which the verses and chapters sometimes come. But we must remember that chapters and verses did not exist. And so the Bible says that the dragon went away. Where did he go away to? He went away to go get his two friends. Revelation 13 describes his two friends. The beast that rises from the sea and the beast that rises from the land. The beast that rises from the sea is a counterfeit system of sacrifice. It's a system of godliness or apparent godliness that denies the power of God. A, A power that attempted to make void the very law of God. And then there was the beast that rose from the land. A lamb-like beast, but powered by the dragon. Counterfeit Christianity. A counterfeit system of holiness and sanctification that is driven by signs, wonders, and emotion. It operated contrary to God's government and operated and operates by the force of legislation. And that is contrary to God's governance, which is a governance of free will, free choice. Because in order for love to truly be love, it must give you the opportunity to say yes 
but also the opportunity to say no. And so after Satan went and got his two friends, the sea beast and the land beast, to form the counterfeit trinity, the dragon imitating the father, the sea beast imitating the son, the land beast imitating the work of the Holy Spirit, the false trinity of the end times, was God caught off guard. Revelation 13 ends leaving dissonance. Who's going to survive this? And then the next picture is the 144,000 standing on the sea of glass. And that 144,000 had been reaped, had been strengthened by God's three messages that were the attack against Satan's counterattack. We call those three messages the three angels' messages. These three angels' messages come prior to the second coming. They are a part of the latter rain and a part of the ripening of the final harvest on the earth. We often place great emphasis on angels two and three, the fall of Babylon and a warning against the mark of the beast. But what about angel one? That first angel's message, which is found in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having what? That's not very convincing. Let me try again. Having what? The everlasting gospel. You see, God's answer to the attack of Satan through the sea beast and the land beast is the everlasting gospel. But here's the question. What is the everlasting gospel? You see, unfortunately, in these days, we talk about the gospel, and when we talk about the gospel, we have this very ethereal conversation with it, something being way out here. We have theological debates. What is the everlasting gospel? If the everlasting gospel is God's demonstration against the attacks of Satan, it would seem to me to be something far more practical than a theological debate. Is there any clue in this passage that might help us to understand what the everlasting gospel is? At the conclusion of the three angels' messages, there is a very short passage that tells us the results of the three angels' messages. In verse 12, a passage that you know well. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is what the three angels' messages produce. A patient people. I want to change that word, though, because that word is translated two different ways in the Bible. One is patience, but the other word used is endurance. There's a third word that is sometimes used, and that is perseverance. How does that give us a clue as to what the everlasting gospel is? 
In the Gospels, this word is used many times. This word patience, translated sometimes endurance or perseverance. But it is used on one occasion that I believe will give us a pathway to understanding what is the everlasting gospel. In Matthew chapter 24, you'll remember that Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, speaking about the signs of his soon coming. And you'll remember in Matthew 24, Jesus warned of false Christs and false prophets. He said that there would be wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nation. He said that there would be pestilences and famines. He warned that there would be false prophets. But in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 13, Jesus uses the identical word used in Revelation 14, 12. In the midst of all of these signs, Jesus says these words, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. In the previous verse, Jesus describes how desperate the times will be. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. My dear friends, as we try to understand what the everlasting gospel is, we have a linguistic tie to Matthew chapter 24 and Revelation chapter 14. And as I have studied these passages, I would estimate that the occurrence of what happens in Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 to 14, are the identical circumstances that happen in Revelation chapter 13 and chapter 14. See, Jesus said there would be a time on this earth where lawlessness would abound. It is the Greek word anomianism, which means nomos is the Greek word for law. Putting the letter A in front of it means the absence of the law. It is not antinomos, it is anomos. It is, there's just the absence of the law. It has been removed. And there will be a time in this earth's history where the law will simply have been seemingly removed. And that the love of many then will grow cold. The word there, love, is the Greek word agape, which is love with no strings attached. The word growing cold, in its usage outside of the Bible, to give a word picture of what this is saying is, have you ever sat in front of a campfire before? Anybody sat in front of a campfire before? Have you ever sat until the campfire went out? The word grow cold is the description of what happens when a fire begins to go out. First, the flame disappears. Then you have the glowing ember. Then the glowing ember begins to seemingly shrink and shrink and shrink until there is no more glow and a puff of smoke is released. 
This is the word picture of growing cold, that, 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 that love will simply be extinguished. And we are living in a time where love for our fellow humanity is being extinguished. And while often when we preach on these verses, we point to terrorism happening around the world, wars happening, happening around the world, there's something far deeper. And it was illustrated in the aftermath of the San Bernardino shootings that happened approximately six years ago. Gene Weingarten, a columnist from the Washington Post, wrote a message on Twitter. You'll remember that after those shootings, there were many that were talking about our thoughts and our prayers are with you. And in response to this, Weingarten wrote this in his Twitter feed. Dear thoughts and prayers people, please shut up and slink away. You are the problem and everyone knows it. Weingarten lashed out at Christians in, a, in particular and their acts of kindness. The next day, the New York Daily News headline was this, God isn't fixing this. And it is subtitled, as the latest batch of innocent Americans are left lying in pools of blood, cowards who could truly end gun scourge continue to hide behind meaningless platitudes. What is happening here and why is there such a lashing out and what can we learn and what does it have to do with answering our question from the sermon title, Which Gospel? The irony of George Weingarten's Twitter message and the New York Daily News article is the reality that the intolerance of the prayers of Christians exemplifies the attitude of intolerance that has led to this terrible massacres that are occurring. It is a sign that love is simply being extinguished in our modern age. This lovelessness that Jesus is talking about is describing a society that has come, become lawless and loveless. But Jesus' answer, God's answer to a lawless and loveless society is found in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14 as we're trying to answer the question, what is the everlasting gospel? What is God's answer to the rise of lawlessness and lovelessness on this earth? Matthew 24 verse 14 says exactly what the answer is. And what is the answer? Matthew 24 and verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations and then the end will come. I want you to take note. It doesn't say that our hope is in politicians. It does not say that our hope is found in Lansing, Michigan. Our hope is definitively not found in Washington, D.C. Our hope is found in one message. And what is that message? This gospel which still doesn't answer the question, what is the everlasting gospel and what is this gospel? Which I believe are the same message. This gospel of Matthew 24, 14, the everlasting gospel of Revelation 14 are the identical message. What is this 
message. What is this gospel? It is God's answer to the rise of lawlessness and lovelessness. God's answer to the rise of the lawlessness and lovelessness of the sea beast and the land beast of Revelation 13 is the everlasting gospel. The rise of lawlessness and lovelessness in Matthew 24 is this gospel, the same message. It is a message that will reignite the flame of love in the world. It is a message that will reignite obedience for God's people. It is to be exemplified through his church, to be a light to people who are in the darkness of the lawless and loveless society that we live in. And let us be very, very clear. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could have used a multitude of words. He could have said the gospel. He could have said a gospel. Or he could have just said gospel, but he didn't. He used a demonstrative, and if you don't like grammar, it's okay. Stick with me. This gospel, a demonstrative adjective or a demonstrative pronoun, he wants to distinguish it from other messages. Why does he want to distinguish it from other messages? Because Paul would later say, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him to a perversion of the gospel. Excuse me, I marvel away that you that you who have been called to the grace of Christ, you have turned to a different gospel, which is not another gospel at all. Why is it that Matthew, under inspiration, would write the words, this gospel? Because he is trying to communicate to all of us living in the end of, the to- in the end of time. There is a particular message that will answer the rise of lawlessness and lovelessness. It is not just some idea out there. That's not what the gospel is. It's not some theological debate. It's not some theoretical device. The gospel, and the word gospel literally means to bring good news of victory. And I have news for you. A theological debate does not bring the good news of victory. What is it that brings the good news of victory? Did Jesus ever articulate how his mission would be accomplished and how he would deliver the news of the good news of victory? I answer that question by asking another. When was Jesus anointed for ministry as the Messiah. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 10 that Jesus was anointed for ministry at his baptism. And at his baptism, as the Holy Spirit came upon him, where did Jesus go after his baptism? It's not a trick question. I always warn you. Where did Jesus go after his baptism? He went to the wilderness where there he was tempted. Tempted in all points as we are. And he was victorious. Where did he go after that? Now it depends on what gospel you're reading. But in the gospel of Luke, and Dr. Luke when he begins his gospel says, I'm working to write to you the most chronological account I can of the life of Jesus. So after the wilderness experience, where does Jesus go? He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. 
And there in his hometown of Nazareth, as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on Sabbath. You remember the story, right? In Luke chapter 4, it tells us. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is asked to do the scripture reading. And there, as he is, there, in Nazareth, he is handed the scroll. And Luke 4, verse 17 18 and 19, tell us what Jesus read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. It was here where Interestingly enough, years ago, as I began studying and beginning trying to understand what is this gospel, what is the message of the gospel, and then as I began to ask that question as a part of my doctoral program, began asking that question, the phenomenal thing is as I began to read other scholars, all of them say, this here in Luke 4 is where Jesus announces to the world how he's going to deliver the good news. This is his mission. This is his work where he reads from Isaiah 61, inserts parenthetically from Isaiah 58 that he came to proclaim, which means there is the spoken word. Jesus came to teach the word. But then he came to heal the brokenhearted, restoring people in their emotional, social, and mental needs. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives, to help people to break the bonds of sin, to recover sight of the blind, restoring the physical blindness, but also spiritual blindness, to set at liberty those who have been oppressed, to bring relief to the downtrodden, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, to give people hope in the future of the second coming. What is the point that I'm making here? What is this gospel? What is the everlasting gospel? It is not a theological exercise, but it is something that is far more practical. What was the practical application for Jesus? The Bible says he went about the cities, towns, and villages preaching, teaching, and healing. You see, the gospel is not an ethereal idea out there. The gospel is action. The gospel is how we live and how we minister to the needs of others, looking for their physical, emotional, social, and mental needs, which then create pathways to addressing spiritual needs. The challenge that many of us have is that many of us have not personally experienced this gospel of Jesus Christ in our own life. Have you heard the good news of victory and believed? Have you been healed of your broken heart? Have you heard and believed that you actually have freedom in him? 
Has your spiritual blindness been recovered? Have the chains of sin been broken in your life? And are you living every day by the hope that you have in the second coming of Jesus? Because if you haven't, you can't deliver the message. Maybe today you're here and you're saying, Pastor, that's all nice and dandy, but I'm broken. Maybe your life has bore out some kind of tragedy. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Frankly, you're amazed that you made it to 2024. Jesus reaches out his nail-scarred hands today and he says to you, whoever you are, come to me. Come to me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. I will bring you healing. I will bring you the assurance of salvation. Jesus is calling for you today, friend. He is calling you to come home and experience his joy. But there is a second appeal. And I don't minimize the first appeal, but that's what we've been preaching about the last four weeks. But I have a second appeal. And I'm going to warn you now that I'm going to share with you some very difficult things to hear. And I will tell you they were difficult for me to hear. And I'm sure for many of you it will be difficult for you to hear. But the question is this. Are you living out the gospel in your own life? Are you the hands and feet of Jesus in your community? Among your family, do they see you as the healer of broken hearts? In your neighborhood, are you known to bring good news whenever you come? In this city, are you known as one who is grace-filled, merciful, and kind? Are you extending the ministry of Jesus? Ministry of Healing, page 143, says these words, The world needs today what it needed 1,900 years ago, a revelation of Christ. And the question I'm asking all of us this morning is, are we a revelation of Christ? Sometimes we make it vastly more complicated than it needs to be. Yes, this is fulfilled in cooking schools and health classes, visitation and evangelistic meetings, but it's far more simple. Did you smile at somebody this morning? Some of you are saying, I don't understand. When I was with It Is Written Canada, we did a series on depression. I interviewed Dr. Neil Nedley. It was our most watched television programs that we did in the five years that Debbie and I were there with It Is Written Canada. We had a young man write in to us. And he wrote a letter and this is what he said. This morning I made a decision. And the decision I made was I was going to kill myself. But I prayed, and I said, God, I'm going to walk around the block. And if no one smiles at me, I'm going to kill myself. Praise God for some set of pearly whites in Canada. Because they smiled at that young man. And he didn't kill himself. And when he got inside, 
He turned on the TV, which, by the way, for depressed people is not usually a way to come out of your depression. However, in this instance, he turned on the television, and there was the interview that I was having with Dr. Neil Nedley. By the way, God works miracles because the station on which he was watching our program was not a station in which we broadcast. Because God can override cable and he can make you watch and help you watch what you need. And what that boy needed, what that young man needed, is he needed hope. Are you providing avenues of hope for, your peop- for people? Are you loving to your wife? Are you loving to your husband? Are you gracious to your child? Are you an extension of the healing ministry of Jesus Christ? Or are you sowing discord? Are you sowing pain? You see, this gospel, the everlasting gospel that Jesus has commissioned us to take to the world is the righteousness of Christ lived out. It is the righteousness of Christ in action. It is the demonstration of God's character. It is not just the sound of a voice. It is not a theological discourse. It is not a theoretical debate. But this gospel, the everlasting gospel, is something that is a practical demonstration of who God really is. Some of you are wondering, what does this have to do with Battle Creek in 2024? Let me read to you something that is extraordinarily disturbing. I'm reading now. Let everyone who claims to believe that the Lord is soon coming search the scriptures as never before. For Satan is determined to try every device possible to keep souls in darkness and blind the mind to the perils of the times in which we are living. Let every believer take up his Bible with earnest prayer that he may be enlightened by the Holy Spirit as to what is truth, that he may know more of God and of Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Search for the truth as for hidden treasures and disappoint the enemy. Now listen very carefully to what I'm about to read. The time of test is just upon us. For the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning Redeemer. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the earth. For it is the work of everyone to whom the message of warning has come to lift up Jesus, to present him to the world as revealed in types as shadowed in symbols, as manifested in the revelations of the prophets, as unveiled in the lessons given to his disciples, and in the wonderful miracles wrought for the sons of men. Search the scriptures, for they are they that testify of him. Do you know who wrote that? Do you know what year that was written? Do you know where it's talking about? My dear friends, this was written in 1892 on November the 22nd. 
and published in the Review and Herald, written by Ellen White. I have a very disturbing question to ask each and every one of us. How in the world are we still here if the loud cry began in 1892? For those of you that don't know what the loud cry is, the loud cry is the final message that ripens the harvest and prepares the way for Jesus to come. How is it? How in the world is it that 132 years later, we are still here? The loud cry had begun. And it had begun right here in Battle Creek. What happened? And what was happening that the loud cry had begun? I don't have time to go into all the historical aspects. But there were at least three, two things happening First, in 1888, there was the Righteousness by Faith movement where the church was recapturing what righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ meant. Along with that, a man by the name of John Harvey Kellogg. Have you ever heard of him before? If you haven't heard of him, just go down the street. John Harvey Kellogg, along with leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, began raising up medical missionary workers and what was called Christian help bands or Christian help workers. Medical missionary workers, Christian help bands, Christian help workers dispersed themselves into the city, went door to door and ministered to the needs. If people needed clothes, they brought clothes. If they needed food, they brought food. If they needed wood for their Wood stove, they would provide and cut the wood. All of this was in full swing. The loud cry in its infancy. But what happened and why are we still here? My dear friends, and I'm oversimplifying history, but quite simply the loud cry faded into silence. The message of, righteous, of the righteousness of Christ was rejected or at best received with skepticism. Kellogg apostatized, was rejected and disfellowshipped, and the voice of the loud cry faded into silence. The call to Christian help work and medical missionary work went unheeded. The church became proud in its organization and institutional prowess. And Ellen White wrote in 1898 in the book Desire of Ages on page 633, Christ tells us when that day shall be ushered in. He does not say that all the world will be converted, but that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And listen to these words. By giving the gospel to the world, it is in our power to hasten the Lord's return. We are not only to look for, but to hasten the coming day of God. And then she makes this statement, which is vastly disturbing. Had the church of Christ done her appointed work as the Lord ordained, the whole world 
would before this have been worn, and the Lord Jesus would have come to our earth in power and great glory. And if I sound upset this morning, it's because I am. Because over and over again, I'm asking the question, what in the world are we doing? Ellen White in 1909 made an appeal at the general conference session to go into the cities and work the cities. And the president of the general conference at that time, A.G. Daniels, who was once the pastor of this very church, A.G. Daniels at the same general conference session got up and began to brag about how many people he had brought into the office of the general conference and how many departmental directors there were. A.G. Daniels went to visit Ellen White in in Elmshaven, and back then you didn't take a flight. He took a train that took multiple days. And when he arrived at her home, he knocked on the door. I may have this wrong. It may not have happened in Elmshaven. It may have happened right very here. Right here. Either way, he went to go see Ellen White. Don't miss the point of the story. He knocked on the door and Ellen White's attendant came and said, Brother Daniels, this is a surprise. How can I help you? He says, I'm here to see Sister White. Give me just a moment. And a few moments later, the attendant came back to the door. This is the general conference president that has come to the house of Ellen White. And the attendant looks with a bit of disbelief as she returns to Brother Daniels and she says to Brother Daniels, Brother Daniels, Sister White has a message for you. She will not see you until you live up to the light that you've already been given. A.G. Daniels stopped bragging about how many people he was bringing into the conference office. And in the aftermath of that interaction, went on a East Coast evangelistic tour, going from city to city, preaching the gospel message. And in his own memoir, he writes these words. He says, I was converted anew. Ponder that for a moment. We had a general conference president that wasn't converted. He was converted anew. And it was in the aftermath of that that the Seventh-day Adventist church began to grow in the most explosive way. But again, some of you may be asking, okay, what does this have to do with anything? And in particular, Pastor, what does it have to do with Battle Creek? My dear friends, the Adventist church was born here. The Adventist educational system was born here. And the Adventist health system was born here. And the loud cry 
started here. And my question that I'm asking myself as I've come here, and the question I'm asking you as you are here, what are we going to do about it? Will the Adventist education system be reborn here? Will the Adventist church be reborn here? Will the Adventist health system be reborn here? Will the loud cry be born here again? Every day I drive into this church, there is a twin tower haunting reminder of our past and the failure of the loud cry fading into silence. And my dear friends, as I said in my first sermon, I have not come here to oversee the legacy of a church sailing into the sunset. My question to you is a very serious question. Will we join together and will we share this gospel of the kingdom with the people of Battle Creek, with Calhoun County, and going around Michigan as a testimony to all nations that then the end would come? Ellen White wrote these words, a revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. To seek this should be our first work. And then she wrote these words in Councils on Health on page 528. Christ gave a perfect representation of true godliness by combining the work of a physician and a minister, ministering to the needs of both body and soul, healing physical disease, and then speaking words that brought peace to the troubled heart. Could it be that right here, today, we as a congregation could be on the verge of some of the whispers of the loud cry beginning again? Will we catch the vision of the comprehensive ministry of Jesus Christ and spread this gospel, the everlasting gospel? Will the loud cry begin to sound again? Or will we just sit idle and just keep on doing what we've been doing? Or will we be a part of the advancing line of God finishing his work on this earth and being a demonstration of the power of his character and his love in this community, on this earth, for this time? Friends, we will only accomplish this by the power of Jesus Christ who says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And it is only as we look upon Jesus and lift his cross high that all men, all women, 
and all children will be drawn to him. Will you join me in that? Will you join me in that mission? As we begin this new year, I want to read one quote to you, and then we will sing our closing song. On January the 5th, 2000, excuse me, January the 5th, 1914, Ellen White wrote these words. Although in one sense the first day of the new year is no more to God than any other day, yet he often puts into the hearts of his children at that time a desire to begin the new year with new resolves, perhaps with plans to carry out some worthy enterprise and with purposes to depart from the wrongs of the old year and to live the new year with new determinations. Will we live this new year and the years beyond with a new determination that the loud cry would start once again because the people of the Battle Creek Tabernacle have committed themselves to being a demonstration and revelation of Jesus Christ in this community and beyond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have fallen far from the grace that you have intended. And now, Lord, we recommit ourselves and we put ourselves in your hands and we submit ourselves to you fully and completely. You have great things in store. We might be scared of how we will get there, but Lord, we pray that you would do those great things, that you would remove any of the obstacles in getting there. Father in heaven, may your movement of destiny and the message that you have be reborn right here today at this very moment. And Father in heaven, we submit ourselves and we say, Lord, we don't want our will to be done. We pray simply that your will would be done and this gospel of the kingdom would be preached to all of Battle Creek, to all of Calhoun County, to all of the state of Michigan, to all of North America and to all the world. And then the end would come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.